You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information Back in 1952, a man named Jesse L. Garrett of Scott Depot, West Virginia, was watching Groucho Marx on television. The comedian was interviewing a woman who had previously appeared on his show, and then she later married one of the men who had seen her on the air at the time. Garrett said, I thought if a woman could do it, so could a man. So in June of 1952, he wrote to the editor of the Rockport Democrat in Indiana, and expressed his interest in advertising in the newspaper for a wife. He was very particular in what he was looking for. He expressed a preference for a Midwestern woman, and one who would make for... An intellectual wife, companion and mother of my two sons. He felt that... A woman from a rural community would be more like my way of thinking. Jesse preferred... A farm woman of good standing a woman with some financial backing so that life would not be uneven and our social standings would be about the same. He added, I prefer a woman about 135 pounds, a little more or less, and between the ages of 35 and 45. He also insisted that she be a good cook. No others need apply. Garrett explained that he picked the Rockport newspaper for the advertisement because he had once lived there. He was a thin, balding, 49-year-old man who stood 6 feet 2 inches tall. That's about 188 centimeters, and he described himself as Not bad to look at, love any kind of fun, have a fair education, and am at home in Hogpen or in a mansion's drawing room. He had left Indiana years earlier. I hitchhiked out of there one winter day with a 49 cents in my pocket, vowing that I might starve to death, but I wasn't going to freeze. I headed south, and when I got to Bell and saw the DuPont plant there, I went in, told them I was broke, and they gave me a job. He saved up his money and eventually had enough to open a grocery store on U.S. Route 60 near St. Albans in West Virginia. The store was named after his ex-wife Georgie, who he had recently divorced on March 14, 1951, after 14 years of marriage. Shortly after the divorce... The store was sold, and Jesse Garrett officially became a retired man. But he was not without an income or assets. Rentals of houses that he owned provided Jesse with a steady income, and he claimed to be worth in excess of $28,000. Adjusted for inflation, that's about a quarter of a million dollars today. 
as he embarked on his journey to find Ms. Wright, Jesse was certain to carry his divorce papers with him to prove to his prospective bride that he wasn't to blame for the breakup of his first marriage. He insisted that his next wife would need the approval of his two sons. That's 10-year-old Jimmy and 11-year-old Jesse Jr., for whom he had been granted full custody. They were quoted in the press as stating, We don't want a fat mama. This story of a hometown boy who made it good was soon making headlines from coast to coast. Responses began to pour in. I received between 3,100 and 3,300 letters, phone calls, and telegrams. A few were from men who wanted me to help them find a wife, but all the rest were from women. I got letters from women in London, Mexico, Guadalcanal, Canada, and about every state in this country. The press caught up with the ex-Mrs. Garrett, and she made it clear that Jesse was no bargain, even with all the money that he claimed to have. Georgie didn't elaborate, but her warning message to all the women out there was perfectly clear. She did state, I'm not sure about his exact age. Noting that he lacked a birth certificate, she added, I know he was 49 for a year or two while he and I were married. As a side note, my calculations indicate he was really a couple of months shy of his 54th birthday at this time. And just for the record, the former Georgie Garrett was 32 years old, weighed 100 pounds or 45 kilograms, stood 59 and a half inches or 151 centimeters tall. In other words, the boys didn't have a fat mama. With thousands of women expressing interest in a possible marriage, Jesse began the process of selecting the bride-to-be. He did express disappointment that only one woman from Rockport had contacted him, but she was quickly knocked out of the running. About 65% of them are sincere, and the rest are mercenary. I found six of them interesting, and am arranging to interview them. I would like to be married in the next three or four days, and I see no reason why I won't. Many women went out of their way to catch Jesse's interest. Some sent photographs of themselves in bathing suits, of their children, their homes, their cars, and more. He said that he wasn't interested in women who sexually teased him or those from Canada who wrote in French. Even a woman worth $2,500,000 didn't make the cut. So here's a sampling of some of the correspondence that he received. A woman in Indiana wrote, I'm babbling like a little old West Virginia brook at the thought of marrying you. Jesse's sarcastic response was, I bet she is. What does she know about a West Virginia brook anyway? A gal from Texas wrote, I assure you that I am no unattractive old egg. I weigh 130, but could reduce some, of course. Another from Indianapolis said, I was reared on a farm, but I'm citified now. I'm a good looker, and I don't pat myself on the back either. A telegram from Lubbock, Texas was short and to the point. If decision not made, contact 128-pound vision of loveliness. Then there was a 29-year-old Wisconsin woman who penned, I know you want a woman who would be responsive to you, gentle yet warm and exciting, someone who would welcome you with warm lips and arms. You sound like quite a man, six foot two, just right for me as I'm five foot eight. 
If you're interested, I'll come see you on my vacation, the first two weeks in July. Clearly unhappy with some of Jesse's female specifications, a lady from Minnesota wrote, Don't forget you're not buying a horse or cow, and listen, boy, you're no spring chicken yourself. Dozens of others were anxious to meet Jesse and called a nearby store. That's because it was one of the few places with a telephone at the time. About one dozen showed up at the local post office, and one woman specified that she would be there soon. I will look for you on Saturday, June 28th at 8 p.m. at the O. Henry Inn on Triplet Street. I'll be wearing a green dress. You wear a brown suit, so I'll know you. Of course, not all were serious inquiries. For example, here is one from Cleveland that was, quote, writ by hand on a paper bag. I love children if you keep them away from me. I just lost four teeth in front and one of my eyes is crossed, but I can hoe taters, man. Jesse interviewed 26 applicants and decided that Mrs. Maxine Berry, a 30-year-old redhead, would make the perfect wife and mother to his children. Unfortunately, she got cold feet and removed her name from his list of possibilities. On June 23rd, that's 12 days after Jesse's story broke in the national news, date number 25 out of the 26 announced that she had accepted Jesse's proposal of marriage. She was 33-year-old Mrs. Etta R. Crosby, and she worked in the classified ad department of the Elkhart Truth newspaper. Mrs. Crosby said that she had answered Garrett on a dare. She said, I know how to write a letter. I work on a newspaper, and I know you've got to sell yourself. I even tore my picture in two, anything to arouse interest. She mentioned in the letter that this is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever done. A brunette with hazel eyes, Mrs. Crosby described herself as thin, a sort of athletic build, five feet seven and a half inches tall, a 27-inch waist, quite good-sized bust, and small hips. Etta had married her first husband, that's Roland M. Crosby, in 1938. Sadly, he passed away on October 6, 1947, at the young age of 33. So she was alone to raise her two children, that's Quinn and Corinne, who were aged 10 and 5 respectively, at the time that she accepted Jesse Garrett's proposal. She said, The children think it's fun and trust their mother's judgment. Those who know me as a serious person cannot understand how I could do a thing like this. But I know it's right. And yes, the two Garrett boys had a hand in choosing their soon-to-be stepmother. The boys were along when Mr. Garrett visited me a few days ago. I believe they decided I was okay. In other words, Etta wasn't going to be a fat mama. <laughs> Jessie was quoted as stating, She's good-looking and smart. She's a good mother, an efficient housewife, and competent in business affairs. She's held a good job as a newspaper ad taker for eight years. She isn't mercenary and is not a social climber. She's charming and gracious. She's an all-around good woman, a fine woman for any man to have around the house. The plan was for the two to wed as soon as possible. Garrett said that they had an offer from WFMB to wed on the air. I should mention that WFMB at the time was the only television station in Indianapolis. At first, Mrs. Crosby was game to the televised nuptials, 
but she quickly cooled to the idea. The couple arrived at Garrett's West Virginia home on Wednesday, June 25th. Etta stayed at Jesse's house that evening while he stayed with friends. Now, the issue as to where the couple would ultimately settle, well, that popped up quite a bit in the press. Etta preferred to live in Indiana, stating, The mountains make me think I'm smothering. Jesse, at least initially, was a bit more open-minded, but he did seem to be leaning toward residing in West Virginia. That Friday, the couple made their way to the Thomas Memorial Hospital in South Charleston, West Virginia, to get their obligatory blood tests. After that, they headed to the county courthouse to obtain a marriage license, but several legal difficulties prevented them from doing so. First, Etta was not a resident of the state. Second, they were told that they would have to wait three days before they could wed. And finally, they wished to be married by a justice of the peace, which was not permitted under West Virginia law at the time. So they needed to look elsewhere. Initially, they were thinking of heading to Kentucky to marry, but for some unknown reason, that plan fell through. I'm determined to marry that woman if I have to go to the ends of the world. By Tuesday, the couple was back in Indiana attempting to obtain a marriage license in Jeffersonville. That didn't work out, so the next day they were back in Rockport. But this time, the county clerk there would not accept their West Virginia blood tests. So the couple's next stop was in the nearby small town of English. The justice of the peace there, a guy named George Magenity, he was willing to perform the ceremony, and that's mainly because the deputy county clerk had failed to notice that their blood test was from out of state. Finally, on Wednesday, July 2nd of 1952 at 12.45 p.m., the couple became Mr. and Mrs. Jesse L. Garrett. The wedding took place at the law office of Henry Mock. Mr. Mock and a reporter named John M. Flanagan acted as witnesses. The bride wore a yellow dress with a floral pattern on it and a white hat, gloves, and shoes. Due to the extreme heat of the day, the groom opted not to wear a jacket, but he did put on a tie for the occasion. A five-diamond wedding band sealed the deal as all the couple's children looked on. From there, the newlyweds and their children left for a short honeymoon in Elkhart, you know, exactly where the bride was from. After that, the plan was for them all to head back to the Garrett home in West Virginia. Where they were going to live permanently was still undecided. Mrs. Garrett stated, I'm willing to do what is best for all concerned, but things are too indefinite now. I can't say where we will live. Her new husband said that upon his return back home, I will either dispose of my property or talk my wife into settling. We're going to take a quick break to hear a few words from the sponsor of today's episode. But when we return, I'll let you know how this all worked out. Let's just say it wasn't all a bed of roses. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back. Shortly before the break, I had mentioned that Jesse was planning on bringing Etta back to West Virginia so that the two could determine where they would ultimately live. But that was never to happen. One month later, on August 5th, it was revealed in the press that Etta never came back to West Virginia with Jesse. The total length of time that the two were married before they went their separate ways was two days and seven hours, hard to believe. Jesse blamed it on her refusal to move to West Virginia, but while he never mentioned it, he clearly refused to live in Indiana. I'll probably divorce Etta. A lawyer friend told me I can go to Florida and get a divorce in six weeks. And that's exactly what he did. Jesse obtained a lawyer and filed for divorce. Etta, in turn, filed a cross-divorce complaint against him. The divorce was granted on March 22, 1953, and Jesse was ordered to pay Etta $40 per month alimony. That'd be approximately $380 per month today, adjusted for inflation. And from there, it appears that Jesse Garrett's life seemed to spiral out of control. His supposed life savings seemed to vanish overnight. The money went quick. First, I spent what cash I had. Then I spent what was set aside for my boy's education. Then I sold some notes I had, and I mortgaged my house. Now they're foreclosing on me. The reason his home was being foreclosed upon was that he had borrowed $3,500 from a Charleston loan company, and he was unable to repay the loan. On February 26, 1955, domestic relations judge Herbert Richardson found Jesse to be in contempt of a court order, and that's for leaving the state without permission, disposing of personal property, and for refusing to make those mandatory $40 per month alimony payments. As two process servers emerged from the courthouse, they spotted Jesse standing on a corner. Jesse refused to submit to arrest and snatched the handcuffs right out of the arresting officer's hands. Next thing you know, a wrestling match broke out between the three men. Two additional officers raced over from the courthouse and ended the scuffle. As Jesse was being led off to jail, he blurted out, Call the newspapers. Call the newspapers! It's amazing what a few years can do. Instead of boasting about what a great catch he was, he was now pointing out how poor and feeble he had become. My sister put me in business at Scott Depot. I get $20 a week and room and board for me and my two boys. That woman has an income of $420 a month. She's 33 years old, and I'm 52 and half blind. They want me to pay her 40 a month. I can't and I won't. Not a penny. He added... I guess I'll just have to get me a couple of pistols and rob a bank somewhere. Jesse also stated, I'll stay in this jail until the bars rot off. I'm only making $20 a week and can't afford to pay her. Five days later, he posted bond and was released. His bondsman, a guy named Mark Wiseman, must have had second thoughts and dropped his surety. Next thing you know, on Sunday, March 13th, Jesse was right back in jail. He was released the next day on a new surety. After that, Jesse basically vanished. He was due back in court on March 21, 1955, but was a no-show. 
In a registered letter that Jesse sent to the court from Nashville, he stated, Please postpone my case for 30 days. This is serious illness here. The judge wasn't buying it and ordered Garrett's arrest. Instead, the court was bombarded with letters and postcards that Jesse penned claiming everything from being framed to kidnapping to outright robbery. On September 25, 1955, Judge Richardson declared his bond forfeited and Jesse's story was dropped from the headlines. I was unable to locate any further information on how this matter is resolved. So if anybody knows, please let me know and I'll update the story. The next time that Jesse would be in the press again was on September 4th of 1974, but this time it had nothing to do with his marriage to Etta Crosby. This time, Jesse and his son Jesse Jr. were arrested as part of a drug sting. Basically, there were two men in Arizona who smuggled marijuana into the United States in 600 pound or 272 kilogram lots. And once it was shipped to the East Coast, the Garretts and others would distribute it to West Virginia and Virginia. Jesse Jr. was sentenced to five years in prison with just 270 days served and the remainder a combination of a suspended sentence and probation. As for his dad, he told Judge K.K. Hall, I've made a lot of mistakes, but I'll do whatever the district attorney tells me. And with that, Jesse Sr. was sentenced to three years probation. Henrietta, or Etta Rems Crosby, passed away on January 8, 2008. She was 89 years old. Jesse L. Garrett Sr. passed away on July 15, 1980, at 81 years of age. He is buried in the Sunset Hill Cemetery in Rockport, Indiana, the same city in which he was hoping to find Ms. Wright. The epitaph on his tombstone reads, We miss you, Dad. Jesse. Jim. Useless. Useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. And now let's talk about something that tastes very, very good. Is it candy? Nope. Is it cake or cookies? Nope. Guess again, Squeaky. Well, is it pie or ice cream? Oh, say, you surely can't think of some good things to eat, Squeaky. But you missed the most important one. I'm talking about cocoa wheat. Oh, my, yes. Yum, yum. Tell the kids all about it, Happy Hank. Well, Cocoa Wheats, boys and girls, is a wonderful new cereal made of cocoa-coated particles of energy-rich wheat. It cooks in about four minutes and has the most heavenly cocoa flavor you can imagine. You put just a little sugar and a little milk or cream on it, and believe me, you've never in your life had such a grand breakfast food. You'll be crazy about its good cocoa taste, and you'll want Cocoa Wheats every morning. Ask Mother to get Cocoa Wheats for you today. It's spelled C-O-C-O-W-H-E-A-T-S, Cocoa Wheats. And if you'll eat lots of Cocoa Wheats, you'll be just as wise as the wise old owl. Listen. That commercial for Cocoa Wheats is from the December 30th, 1948 broadcast of the Happy Hank radio show. Happy Hank was born Marcus Dumont Williams, or simply Mark Williams, in 1903 in Ellis County, Texas. He was a singing cowboy who recorded dozens of songs for the Brunswick and Decca labels during the late 1920s and early 1930s. He became known as the Cowboy Crooner on his radio show that ran on KRLD from 1927 until 1930. Somewhere along the line, he picked up the moniker of Happy Hank, and he hosted this radio show starting in 1945 
until at least 1948. He later graduated from Wayne State University in 1959 and began a legal career in Detroit. He passed away on June 18th of 1974 in Fort Worth. As for cocoa wheats, it was introduced in 1930 by Little Crow Foods. It's considered to be the first flavored hot cereal, and its ingredients were quite simple. Just wheat farina and cocoa powder with a little bit of flavoring, coloring iron, and vitamins. Back then it took four minutes to cook cocoa wheats on the stove. Today it can be prepared in 90 seconds in a microwave oven. The makers of cocoa wheats, that's Little Crow Foods, sold its assets to the makers of Malto Meal, Mom Brands, in 2012, which in turn sold out to post-consumer brands where it is still being sold today. Moving on. So names like heroin, aspirin, cellophane, escalator, kerosene, and laundromat, they were all once trade names for the companies that originally manufactured the products. Today, they're all generic. So here's a question for you. Can you name the first brand name that became genericized? Here's a hint. It's a type of flooring. Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In other news, here are three additional stories that all have to do with love and marriage in some way. In our first story, Robert C. Budoff and Leona Bennell were scheduled to be married on March 8th of 1911 at 4 p.m. at St. Matthew's Episcopal Church in Manhattan. After a great evening with family, Robert agreed to meet Leona the next day, you know, the morning of their wedding, at 10 a.m. But Robert didn't show up and the family began to search for him. They were unable to locate him, so the police were called in. Did he get cold feet and run away? Was Robert mugged or possibly murdered? Did he jump off the nearby arch of the Riverside Drive viaduct? It was none of these. At 2 p.m. that afternoon, Robert walked right into his parents' apartment. It turns out that he had stopped off to visit a friend the previous night and fell asleep there. He was such an abnormally sound sleeper that he slept right through to that afternoon. The couple was married at the church at 4 p.m. that day, just as scheduled. In our next story... Here's an odd one that took place on May 3rd of 1952 in Ramsgate, England. 21-year-old Mrs. June Rivers was awoken that evening as her husband came in drunk from a wedding reception that he had attended with his friend, who was 23-year-old William Roland Williams, or William Williams. The two had the typical marital relations before the husband got up and said he would go downstairs and get her some tea. When he returned a short time later, she questioned where the cup of tea was, to which he responded, What tea? He told her that she must have been dreaming since he never said that he would get up and get her a cup of tea. 
but she was adamant that he had promised and clearly remembered the smell of beer and mustard pickles on his breath. Well, it turns out that she had slept with the wrong man. Her husband's friend William had come back to their house after the wedding to get his bicycle and drunkenly stumbled upstairs to the bedroom and climbed into bed with her. Williams later admitted, quote, I started kissing her and she responded. He added, I don't know what made me do such a thing. I am sure that if I had not had so much to drink that I would not have done it. Williams was charged with, quote, having carnal knowledge of June Pauline Rivers without her consent by impersonating her husband. Well, they were all in court on July 9th when Williams claimed that Mrs. Rivers knew that he was in the bedroom with her and that she was an old flame of his. He added that he had kissed her several times since her marriage and that she had told him multiple times that she hated her husband. It took the jury 20 minutes to find Mr. Williams innocent of the charges. In our last story for today, you could say that 22-year-old Kentucky native Jim Owen really went the distance for love. He met 21-year-old Jimena Villarreal while she was an exchange student at the University of Kentucky. The two dated for a few months before she returned home to Santiago in Chile. They continued to correspond by mail, and she asked him to come visit her. Well, most people would hop on a plane, but not Jim Owen. He came up with a crazy idea to ride the 8,000 miles or 12,800 kilometer distance on a motor scooter. Jim convinced a U.S. distributor that it would be a great sales promotion if they donated the bike to his cause. He also secured a $500 or about $4,000 today letter of credit, and he was on his way. He said, quote, I'm not the type of person to jump on a motor scooter and ride thousands of miles to see a girl. We are not engaged or anything like that, but I like her a lot. He continued, I'm not adventurous by nature, and I'm certainly not athletic. He embarked on his trip in early May 1962, and his goal was to get to Santiago on December 31st so they could ring in the new year together. Well, I checked and the press never did a follow-up on the story, but I think it's safe to assume that he did make it there. At least that's the way I'd like the story to end. So earlier in the podcast, I had asked you to name the first brand name that became genericized. Did you know what it was? Well, the answer is linoleum. Linoleum was invented by Englishman Frederick Walton in 1855. The story goes that one day forgot to cover a can of oil-based paint and noticed that a thin, rubbery, flexible film had formed on the top of the paint. Basically, the linseed oil in the paint had skinned over. Intrigued, he peeled off the layer and began to think of different ways to use the film. His original thought was to use it as a covering for ship decks, but soon realized that using it as a general floor covering would bring him greater financial reward. Walton's original formulation involved mixing the linseed oil with cork dust and sawdust to make it less tacky, and then applying the mixture over a cloth backing. He originally called his invention Camptacon, 
which was similar to another brand of flooring named Camp Tulicon, but he soon changed it to linoleum. It comes from the Latin linum, which means flax, and oleum, or oil. In other words, he named it for what it really was, flaxseed or linseed oil. Well, it wasn't long before others were making similar products. In 1887, Sir Michael Narn established the American Narn Linoleum Company in the United States, and Walton sued for trademark infringement. Well, the court ruled against him for two reasons. First, he never formally trademarked the name. And second, even if he had, so many companies were using the name by that point that it was considered to be generic. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, I'm in the process of writing a new book. It'll be a collection of unusual, long-forgotten stories, you know, just like the ones you hear on this podcast. It's probably about a year away from publication, you know, I'm thinking maybe about late spring of 2020, but if you'd like to receive occasional updates as to when the book will be available, just go to my website, which is uselessinformation.org, you know, uselessinformation.org, and click on the image of the book on the left. That will take you to a Google form where you can enter your contact information. I promise not to, you know, deluge you with spam. Well, the next podcast is another bonus episode. Students in one of my English classes in the school that I teach in were required to interview someone for a podcast. I really liked one that was done by one of our seniors, a kid named Van Oles, really nice guy. And I asked him if it would be okay to post it. It's basically a tribute to his grandfather who tells the story of his life and his career as a pharmacist throughout. I really liked it, and I think you'll enjoy it also. I should also mention that occasionally you'll hear a plug for podcasts on the ParCast network. Sometimes it'll just be a little blurb that I record, and other times it'll be a special five to seven minute standalone segment. Basically, we're doing an exchange program to increase the number of listeners to our podcasts. They have a much larger audience than I have, so by them promoting my podcast on their network, it's a free, and I love free, it's a free way for me to hopefully increase my audience also. As always, be sure to sign up for my new Twitter feed. It's at UselessInfoCast, at UselessInfoCast, and then you'll be among the first to know when a new episode's released. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. All you need to do is do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there, and it should pop up. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, that used to be iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, and through any of the leading podcast platforms. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Be sure to go to recordedhistory.net to learn about all the quality history podcasts that the network has to offer. Anyway, thanks for your patience while I got this episode together, and I hope you tune in next time. Bye. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.